What's the matter with these people? Batten down the hatches, put up the sail, stick with boat metaphors. This Week in Mormons is here, everyone. I'm your host, Jeff Openshaw. Nice to be with you once more. Yes, still This Week in Mormons. Almost a year since President Nelson tried to tell us to stop being Mormons. Here I remain, apostate, ready to go. <laughs> and here I am, joining an apostasy. My name is Jared Gillins. You may remember me from such podcasts as, well, I actually did a couple episodes of uh, Sunday School Bonanza back in the day. Uh yeah. Uh, also, um, if, if you're keeping up with the the newest and coolest podcast, you might recognize me from the Jean-Luc Picard cast presented by the Brothers Gillens. Um, there's only three episodes of that uh, extant as of the recording of this, so maybe you don't, maybe you haven't heard it, but you should. Okay, explain this podcast to us, the Jean-Luc Picard cast. Picard cast, yes. Uh, Picard cast, that's a fun word. That's a great portmanteau that you've made right thank now. Thank you. My, 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 my younger brother, uh, the shark, Shark Gillens, came up with that. Uh, he and I are just really uh, enthusiastic Star Trek fans. I don't know if we're the biggest or the nerdiest, but we, we really like the show. And when we found out that there was going to be a new Picard-based Trek show... Right. Uh, on CBS, on CBS, all right, access. Yeah, um, we were really excited, and we decided um, to channel that excitement into a podcast. So we are, are the whole premise of the podcast is, you know, Star Trek: The Next Generation. We believe shaped us in a way, like it, you know, whether it's because of the male bonding we experienced with our brothers and uh, our father, or you know, just the lessons learned from the great uh, avuncular figure of Jean Luc Picard. Um, it's something that shaped us. And so we, we, the first couple episodes are just Shark and I talking about why the show is important to us, why we love Picard. And then the, the whole idea is that people will come onto our show and talk with us about why it, you know, it shaped them, why, why, why Jean-Luc Picard and Star Trek The Next Generation is important in their life. And I don't know, we just like hearing people's stories and getting them to talk and nerd out about episodes of Next Generation that they love. Nothing wrong with that. I like the one when Tasha Yar dies. Uh, it's actually a really good episode. Um, okay, I know. I was just teasing, but yes, yeah. I recall that vaguely from my youth. My sister watched Star Trek: The Next Generation more avidly than I did, but I think I kind of osmosisted everything pretty well, mm -hmm. you know, growing up. That's a good Osmos verb. Yeah, osmosticized. Um, didn't she actually get killed off? Because she was it. She wanted off of the show because she wanted to be a movie star. Did I she can't pull that. Kind of yeah, thing? there's a whole backstory. You'd have to ask Denise Crosby herself why she uh, left the show. Uh, notably, she came back uh, for a few episodes. Best of all, in the renowned episode "Yesterday's Enterprise," it was a fan fantastic. Yes. That's one of the fan favorites. We haven't talked about that uh, one yet. So, if anybody wants to be on the show and talk about "Yesterday's Enterprise," we welcome you. She's also in 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 1998 when two movies about asteroids came out, Armageddon and Deep Impact. She was in the more thoughtful one of Deep Impact, which was, as long as we're doing random trivia, filmed partially in our neck of the woods, Jared. Our neck of the woods? Uh, in the D.C. area. There's a part when they're, I don't remember where they're supposed to be, but they're on like some kind of a highway trying to flee to the mountains or something like that. Hmm. They actually filmed that part, and she's in those scenes with her family. They filmed that part on the then just finished uh, Fairfax County Parkway, which had not yet opened to the public. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. I, I did not know that trivia. Trivia all around. And I agree with ah. you, by the way, that uh, that is the more thoughtful of the two uh, asteroid-based movies. Well, Armageddon is garbage. It is. If you want to talk about some of the worst time, I, 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 years ago, 10 years ago, I guess it was, I was in Paris. And of course, when you're in Paris, you should take time to go to Disneyland Paris. Why would you not when you're in Paris? Right. And and so, I I mean, I, people know, I, I mean, I grew up 15 minutes from Disneyland. So yeah, I care a little bit more. But uh, they have this Armageddon attraction at the Hollywood Studios Park next door, and it's the worst waste of time I've ever been on in my life. Mm. You go in this room, and it's supposed to be like from that movie when the asteroid hits the hits the Mir space station, mm -hmm. something. It's yeah, yeah. So I'm still bitter about it. I could have done something else with that half an hour of my of my time. One one more tangent, if you, if you if you yeah. allow it. I I just think it's sure. interesting that you know we get these that phenomenon right where two studios try to one up each other you know so you, it happened a lot in the 90s yeah actually. so yeah. You, we had volcano and dante's peak you know. well that's what i was going to say it's interesting to me because usually there's one that's generally considered better than the other so for example like deep impact is better than 
Armageddon. And I would say that a bug's life is better than ants. I think most people would agree. But when you, yes. but when you try to weigh Dante's Peak against Volcano, man, those things are both terrible for very they're different They're both reasons. not very... There's no, yeah, I mean... But there's no better Volcano movie. Like, they're both just rotten. What about Joe versus the Volcano? Oh, yeah. Well, that's obviously an exception. Okay, good. I mean, isn't that... I mean, Volcano Volcano has the great... Look, think about this, what happens in Volcano, though. You've got the jerky MTA worker who jumps into the lava to save a guy from the from the subway car. Also, that movie's a lot of fun as an Angelino because they played so much on the then very new Los Angeles subway. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you have the racist cop who learns a lesson in not being racist at the end when he and the African-American guy help to you know stop the lava it's got it runs deep man right it's and then they all come out layer. and they're co- everybody's covered in ash and we realize that we all look the same yes it's like the temple you don't know where anybody does for a living wow, that, was a, that was a good wide. segue into the relevant topic of this podcast thank you i was actually going to deviate from it again but thank you <laughs> um because i just want to ask you one thing as, as a trekkie is a very big okay so you like star trek the next generation is the formative one will this show in any way or does your interest also crossover into Deep Space Nine, oh. uh, Voyager. Oh, of course. I mean, okay. any good Trek fan, I would say most most Trek fans like, you know, the breadth of the shows, but they also have their very strong opinions about which show is better than, you know, there's a ranking for sure. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will enjoy all forms of Trek. I like the the J.J. Abrams trilogy. Oh, I mean, and that was my next question. Yeah, I ask you if you, if you like are, the Abrams movies or if oh, yeah. heresy. No, I mean, I, I I watched those with aplomb. I thought they were fun. I, I really enjoyed going to the theater. I thought Chris Pine, most of all, um, what's his name? Carl Urban. What a fantastic McCoy. He was perfect. Um, I almost called him Keith Urban, but I was like, no, that's not right. Um, they should get Keith Urban in a Star Trek movie. <laughs> right. I wonder who he would right. play. Um but yeah, so I, I enjoy the original series. You know, that was what my dad originally hooked him on Star Trek. And uh, I, of course, I, for me, Next Generation is is the top series. But I would say Deep Space Nine is very close behind that. Uh, I enjoy much of Voyager, uh, some of Enterprise. I've I've been liking Discovery. We won't get into that. There's a whole, um, you know, we could just make this whole whole episode discussion about my thoughts about discovery but uh, you know I, I like watching the show i think it's good and i'm very excited about picard um because he's my captain are, are you worried last thing about this so because because the world of, of streaming and now every network is creating their streaming platform cbs all access is a little bit older now than uh the more nascent ones coming like hbo max nbc's developing something disney yeah. um but uh the one thing that seems to happen with everyone who goes streaming is they decide to adultify everything, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I, have, I have not watched the uh, newer Star Trek one on there, but my understanding is it's got some more risque material than one would find typically what we're used to with Star Trek. Yeah, risque might right? even be a strong word for it. I mean, there's definitely stronger language. Um, it, yeah. it, feel, it does feel less like a family show. And that's a... Um, a complaint I've heard kind of across the board, not just from me and not just from Mormons or LDS people. So, uh, you know, Star Trek has been, you know, for like for me, it was a show I could sit and watch with my dad when I was a, a young kid. I was seven when yeah. Next Generation yeah. came out. So, um, so I, it, it does kind of bother me, you know, that I would be, think, you know, if I had like a seven-year-old son, would I want him to hear, you know, the Admiral cursing at the captain or whatever, you know? So, yeah. I, so my... So my question is, we're excited for the Picard show. Are you worried they're going to do the same thing to Picard? And will that be an issue for you? Because it's one thing to take new characters with a new show, but now you're dealing with something that's already canon. And what if they revise it in that way? Will that be a turnoff? Right. Well, see, to be honest, really what I'm more concerned about is is the word you just uttered is is the canon. (laughs) I'm less concerned about adult language in a CBS, you know, new booted uh show of star trek i'm less concerned about those sorts of things than i am about continuity like any good trek fan i want them to respect the source material i want them to respect the timeline i want them to respect the characters that have already been developed yeah Uh, yeah so as long as uh as long as we get captain picard as i want him to be in my authoritative trek fan mindset you know obviously that's as it should be uh i I don't care if he drops a few you know four letter words It'll be, you know, it'd be funny to have Patrick Stewart doing it because he already did the same thing with the X-Men series doing Professor X. And then in Logan, he's cussing up a storm. It's so, true. you know, 
Anything goes. Okay. Well, the whole media landscape is funny like this. Did you ever watch that show Designated Survivor? It was terrible. No, I, it, I didn't watch it because I heard it was terrible. Yeah, it was a great premise that they totally ruined. So it got canceled, but then Netflix picked it up. And the same thing, though. Netflix didn't just like pick it up as it was, like a, you know, a Netflix-type show. So apparently it's back with a season three, which is just like suddenly full of language and sex and all this stuff that did not exist before. And I've read all these complaints on like common sense media of parents who watched the first two seasons, which was just a TV 14 network television program with no idea going into season three that all of a sudden they've decided to, you know, flip the whole show around. I just read this last night. So whatever. I apologize, everyone, for this exciting foray into uh, media analysis, which is Admittedly, something I could geek out about all day here with Jared. So clearly, we should have many shows. Do you like the Marvel movies? We should do a whole podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I love the I bet, Marvel movies. I bet nobody's done that at all. No. Nobody's done a probably podcast not. about that. So back to that whole covered in ash, we're all the same like the temple. Let's talk about <laughs> Latter-day Saint news, my dear good friends. Lots has gone on, especially because last week we had an interview when we did the uh, we did a great interview with the author of, and it was very good, the Latter-day Saint sex manual, mm. which was f- a fascinating hour. I hope you all enjoyed that. So we also have, because of that, a lot of news that's sort of backed up at this point, right? Um, so one of the first things I want to get into here, which is very interesting, this just, this just hit. Uh, reportedly, the church is putting out a survey right now uh, discussing membership members' feelings about bishops or others doing interviews, not just with youth, but with children as young as eight years old. And I, I think the timing on this is either auspicious because of how sort of just bishops' interviews have been a thing in the news a lot more uh, in the past year or so, or if it's boneheaded and the folks at PR and research are couldn't have picked a worse time to engage on this issue. I'm not quite sure which one I, I I'm, I'm into so far on this matter. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, so uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I had similar thoughts. I was like, well, are they, maybe it was something that was already in discussion and they said, whoa, well maybe we need to take, slow down and do a little more analysis of this. So let's, let's make a survey to make sure we're, we're, we're on the right track or, or, or maybe, maybe, Maybe not. Maybe, like you said, maybe it's just and, kind of are ignorantly are saying, oh, we're doing this thing. Why should it be an issue? Yeah, and that's the thing. It's not like it's a survey of existing youth interview structure, which they have amended, and people need to remember that. And one of the questions in this is to ask if people are aware that parents are now completely allowed to sit in on interviews at the youth with their youth. And they're trying to gauge awareness of that to know how many people even know. Right. So that's one of the questions. But it's not just about youth interviews. It's straight up saying, like, if we start interviewing eight through 11-year-olds, what do you think of that? But they do ask, who would you prefer to conduct those interviews? A bishop, one of his counselors, um, or a member of the primary presidency, or members of the young men's and young women's presidencies? So bearing that in mind, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world if they did interviews, if like the primary president was just sitting down with kids. As long as it's about kid-type stuff. I'm very concerned that one of the things they ask about here on a scale is essentially talking about virtue, et cetera, like with an eight-year-old, mm-hmm. which... I'm not as on board with that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I'll just say I agree with that. <laughs> I, I'm not on. I, well, I, it's, I'm, it's worthy. I'm not as on board with a lot of these concepts, but I'm not. A, I'm not generally opposed just to the idea of sort of a get to know you or like how are you, you know what questions yeah, do you right. have or you know what do you feel like you've learned this year that kind of stuff like you know and if it's about like building relationships or trust you know that you know the old brt from the commitment pattern um i i don't that, that was a thing people did when there were six discussions everyone i don't do they even <laughs> learn still learn i don't know i don't even and, this. um but, you know, I, I I don't necessarily think I'm opposed to that. But, yeah, when you get into these, like, is it going to be the same as, like, Temple Recommend interviews? Or is it going to be about, like, now let's talk about the dangers of pornography. I'm like, ah, yeah, that's where I start to go, I don't know. I don't know. Why, why would we want to, like, start down this path? It's It seems tenuous to me. Yeah. And it doesn't mention that, but it does say, it asks if you uh, either prefer this be discussed, no preference, or not to be discussed. Um, but one of them is just worthiness broadly. So it doesn't say anything beyond that. But like if it's a primary kid, I don't know. I don't if I had my kids aren't not my oldest isn't nine or anything yet. 
But I don't know if I'd want a nine-year-old having an interview about worthiness because these always go off the rails. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not always, but I mean, there's always there 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 always will be an example that stands out of some of of, of this going off the rails. So. Thank you, Jared. One thing I like about having Jared here is Jared is an editor. So if I drift into hyperbole or anything like that, he's going to call me on it, which is good. It's good for me. It's true. And also speaking, and of, not not only am I an editor, but I, uh, you know, I I, I don't want to brag, but uh, I actually have a uh, bachelor's degree in political science from uh, the great at University of Brigham Young. Is that what your undergrad was in? Yeah, yeah, political know. science, and so. I mean, and this me was me too, Jared. Me too. This was, um, you know, over a decade ago. I, I won't reveal exactly how long ago I finished this degree, but I, I did have to t- do a little bit of, uh, of receive some instruction and do a little practice in evaluating, um, question, you know, questions on surveys, and and so there were a, a few times yeah. when I was reading through yeah. these survey questions where I kind of stopped to say, I don't know if this was, you know, just properly edited uh to be a good question because you know because it would say something like you know who you know when, in these interviews who do you think would be the best person to do these interviews you know and it gives you the list of all the choices and and it was so funny because i mean i know there were separate questions that allowed uh the respondent to say something like oh i just i don't think i wouldn't want this interview to happen but i kind of felt like that that choice needed to appear because if you were doing that and you, and your your answer was I don't want these interviews to happen. And they say, well, who would you prefer to do it? Would it either be the bishop or the primary president or the young men's president? Blah blah blah. Right. There should also be an option that says none of the above. I don't think this should happen. And that wasn't there. And there were a few times on the survey where I thought, you know, they need to acknowledge that not everyone's going to think one of these answers is the best answer. Somebody's going to say none of these answers is the best answer. You know, that's a good, that's a good criticism. I mean, I, uh, I too am a poly, like I said, I'm a poli sci grad. I think we both took the famed poli sci 200. Yes. At BYU. Yes. I, I um, want to give all of the credit to Dr. Ray Christensen for my ability to discuss this topic. Right. Yes. Now. I, I, uh, <laughs> I also had Ray. Oh, good old Ray. Um, yeah, I, that's a really good point. Cause we talk about people get, we get incensed about, the other issues around it, but when we talk about the actual quality of the survey, that's a whole different area. And I've worked in market research before, and I've admittedly composed surveys and things like that. Um, yeah, they should have a, or, or even treat it like a screener type thing. I don't know. It's a good point. If you say, no, I'm not comfortable with it at all, there should be, instead, it should take you down a different track where it automates questions uh, asking why you are uncomfortable with things like that. That should be a whole other component of the survey. I think they could learn a lot of good information there right. instead of the assumption that someone's going to do it. Yeah, because if you don't want it to happen, then who do you think the best person to conduct the interview is is a moot question at this point. Like, there's no point. Good in. point. That's a that's a good takedown right there. I like it. So, <laughs> uh, well. Jared, you're you're doing great. You're opinionated about things, even though you're in a bishopric. Good job. Oh man, are we revealing that? Shoot. Okay. Yeah, I'm in the. Bishopric. No, I'll, I'll I will edit this out. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I have other cred that I'm uh, I'm sitting on. I guess I'm saving. I'll save it for later. But uh, <laughs> cred. I, oh, you guys didn't see. I did air quotes when I said cred. Um, I wanted to actually. So speaking of cred, I'm really good at segues. And you know, you you mentioned the the uh, six missionary discussions a few minutes ago. And, and if you remember, Jeff, back when we had those six missionary discussions, in the at the end of the second discussion, so ostensibly the second time you talked with a person and sat down to instruct them, oh yeah, they asked you at the end of that discussion to invite the person to be baptized. Uh, did, and I, I'm curious did did you generally follow that that script? Did you get to well, the end of the I, second I, discussion <laughs> and say, "Will you be baptized"? <laughs> I think I tried to do what I felt was the common sense thing and follow the spirit of it all. It was only when uh, when Preach My Gospel was announced, which did not come out in Spanish before I was done. Mm-hmm. Um, when they announced it, I meant I, we were kind of scratching our heads a bit because we're like, is the issue been that missionaries are just sort of going through the motions and reciting the discussions and then like automatons just inviting at the end of the second? I mean, you'd feel the pressure to do it because you wanted to be effective and challenge people and be bold and all the, you know all those all that strong language we like to throw out there when you're trying to pump up missionaries that are very similar to sales, uh, inst- you know, things. Um, so I don't think we always would. There, I, I have many memories of us saying, you know, talking about it. This is the second discussion. We know what's at the end of it. Uh, but then when it came to it, like my companion might have been the one who's going to do it. 
and he didn't do it. And I'd say, what happened? He's like, it just wasn't there. I could tell. I was like, mm-hmm. so we'll come back next time. And that's fine. I mean, we bounced around discussions a lot. I often taught for one, three, two, because oh. I felt the, the discussion on the restoration was very important. Yeah. Yeah. Because why would you yeah. want to be baptized into a new church unless if you didn't understand like why this new church is, is something you want to join or, you know, something different yeah. or significant. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it makes yeah, sense. Exactly. And, 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 and I think, you know, the correlation and the missionary department uh, agreed with you because now the apostasy and restoration is all part of the first, uh, the, the first encounter sort of, I don't know. If Boom. Lawyered. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is all relevant because I, again, if I, if our, our listeners are savvy followers of the Mormon news or Latter-day Saint Christian news, or they follow our Facebook page, facebook.com right. slash this week in Mormon. R- yes. Thank you. Good plug. Um, you, they may have seen that Elder Ballard, there's an article that we posted that uh, said that Elder, ba- Elder Ballard is speaking out against the hasty baptism invitations. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it is basically the reasoning is what you just described just now, that it's supposed to be something that's inspired by the Spirit. You're supposed to evaluate the person that you're teaching with, how they've progressed, how they're embracing things, whether they have a testimony or not, are they keeping their commitments, like reading the Book of Mormon and coming to church? And then, yeah, ultimately, it should be the Holy Ghost that whispers to you, hey, invite this person to be baptized. And instead, apparently, just missionaries are, um, I mean, and this has sort of been a stereotype, I think, for a long time that we're worried about the numbers. You know, every week, your, your district leader is going to call you up, and he's going to say, hey, give me your numbers. And it depends on your mission. I don't know what what you guys had to report in uh, your mission in Spain, but uh, I think we actually did in my mission have to report baptism invitations. I think that was one of our metrics. And uh, so I don't remember if we did that. We we did contact uh-huh. and then uh, good old citas para volver. So actual like how many like return setups you have out of your contacts. Basically, you're, you're essentially trying to measure your effectiveness of contacts to actual appointments set up from said contacts. Interesting. Uh, and then like which discussions were taught and what. I don't know that we actually logged baptismal invitations. I can't remember separately. if we did either. It's again, it, it's it's longer than I care to uh, to admit uh, specifically on this podcast. I don't know. Maybe I'll maybe I'll, maybe, maybe we'll we'll do a big you know we'll do a big just, reveal at some point. as you get comfy with our listener base. You can reveal all you want. We have to yourself. BRT first. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so it's been a while. But I, yeah, definitely we had. Uh, you know, new, new contacts, uh, we, you know, like, uh, I think we would even report, you know, how long we spent tracting. We also had a, a metric and I don't, I don't think it was on there for my whole mission, but it was called OYMs, uh, which was open your mouths, which was just, oh. a, a, yeah, it was great. I, I, I was probably an AP who came up with that. Um, those, those APs. Um, but it basically feel- an OYM was a street contact. Like, you know, if you saw someone on the street and like opened your mouth to speak to them and, and try to invite them to have a discussion or whatever, that was something we See, tracked. And then, yeah, which discussion, like how many of each discussion you taught, Yeah, uh, how many baptisms you had, obviously was on the list, but, uh, you know. Yeah, of course. OYMs. We, we didn't do those. We had You'd count a contact, but only if you engaged in some sort of substantive gospel discussion. Mm-hmm. They couldn't just be like, if you walked in the street and said, "Hey, what's up? Here's a pass along card." We wouldn't, you know, that that would not count, for example. Yeah, that was not an OIM, but it had to be something. You had to testify about like something important. But it's funny when you think about goals like this, right? Because I'm sure many who have served missions, even up until recent history, can relate to this. But like for contacts, our goal was a hundred contacts a week. Hmm. Okay. Um, was there pressure because of numbers to not necessarily juice that number, but find creative means of obtaining it? Yes. Like one great example, I was in my, in my last area and I should have known better. I was the zone leader and everything. But um, we went down, there's this beautiful esplanade in the city right along the Mediterranean. And we'd go down there with our hymn books, four of us, two companionships, and sing hymns to all the beautiful old people. Mm. And because the hymns are a form of worship and preach doctrine, we'd be like, all right, what was that there? I was like, what, eight or nine people on that one? Great. Cha-ching. About (laughs) 12 over there. Would you pull out your little paper planner and just start making little hash marks of like, okay. Yeah, we'd make hash marks. And you do this like on a Sunday morning and your week was light. So oh. that you could get up to where you'd be. Because the one thing I hated the most, because I, I did not love numbers, but what I hated the most as a zone leader especially was when I'd do the whole zone's numbers and the assistants would be like, well, wh- why was this companionship slower? And I'd be like, I don't know. They just had a bad week. Like, this happens. What, what do you want me to say? Like, they oh. lack faith now? I don't, you know. Oh, Elder Openshaw. 
I know I was terrible. <laughs> For a brief number, another anecdote in the same area, we once tried to get away from numbers to see what would happen to get our mind out of away from numbers. So we across the zone, we did a challenge where, um, if I can best explain this, basically we still had to track numbers because I did have to turn stuff in at the end of the week. There was no getting around that. But what we did is we made each companionship or member of the companionship alternate. So on one day of the week, if it was my day, I would keep track of like the numbers we do, but I would not share any of them with my companion. And the next day he would do them and share nothing with me. And that was kind of enough so that neither of us was completely aware of how we were really doing during the week. And we were just going to roll the dice and see how it shaped up at the end when we had to tally it all up. Mm -hmm. And the whole zone actually had higher numbers that week than we ever normally did. Because it seemed, I think we were less stressed out about hitting quotas and just just getting to it. So I've spoken a lot about this. How do you feel what, what about the, what, what else do we learn here about the hasty uh, baptismal stuff here? I mean, I like that in this article down, there's three things that he says are really rough byproducts of when this happens, namely that um, members don't want to share like their own friends and contacts with right. missionaries. They don't trust the missionaries. Yeah. Yeah. And missionary feels like salespeople, right. but like actually talking about how bad it is for them during their mission and post-mission where they feel like they've engaged in high pressure tactics to get people baptized. Uh, and also, of course, people being taught might just feel put off. Like, why are you asking this of me? I don't, I don't get it. So. Yeah. And that's the thing. And it's hard not to do the whole sales analogy or comparison as a missionary because you are, I mean, in a way you are selling something you're, I mean, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense at all. Like you're out there as a marketer for Christ. You know? Well, and it's fun. And it's and, funny. Cause you'd say we're not selling it, but I've talked to, I've seen in some sort of internal documents from the church, more public affairs realm. Mm -hmm. and, and if it's a different area, but they speak very candidly, like being a Latter-day Saint, it's a lifestyle brand. It's all this stuff. And they speak in that language. So it's funny to me when we pretend missionaries aren't well, it's selling. Funny. Well, yeah, I mean, and even Paul talks about it that way. I was in, I was reading in Second uh, Corinthians the other day uh, for I was doing some lesson prep, and uh, you know, he he in Second Corinthians five he talks about how we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation that we've been entrusted yeah. with the word, and then he ends that little section by saying we commend you to come unto Christ and be reconciled to God through Him, and so it's like he's saying like we have this thing. And it's our job to invite people. And, it, and it's almost as if he's giving a sales pitch, like we commend you to God, you know, we, so, um, yeah, it, so it's hard not to, and, but it's, that's funny. Cause I, so my dad, uh, always told me that he thought I should go into sales. My dad was in sales. He was an insurance salesman for a while and he was pretty oh, good. Oh, that at, is excellent. Yeah. Isn't that excellent? Uh, he was, he was, a, he was a pretty decent insurance salesman. And I remember him trying to encourage me, like, Jared, you should go into sales. You'd be good at sales. And when I came back from my mission, I did look at a little bit into some sales jobs and I considered a few of them. But in the end, I was just like, you know what? I don't I don't think I can go into sales because if I'm going to sell something to somebody, I really want to have the, like, you know, for me, the integrity of like wholeheartedly believing, like, you need this and you need to get it from me. And I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to feel that strongly about it as or as strongly as I did as a missionary. Like, and so I kind of had like set this impossible standard for sales where I was like, I was fine with uh, offering the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ministry of reconciliation to uh, everyone that I came in contact with. But I don't know if I could do the same thing with like pest control, home security or insurance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But, but you I'm know, in the same I'm in the same boat. I, I, uh, yeah, I feel like I could sell stuff well, but only if you believe in it. Otherwise, it's just garbage. Right. Like Zencaster that we're currently using is a great service. People should use it. Are they? Uh, cool. are they we're not being paid to say oh, that. Okay. All right. Keep keeping on missionaries then, real quick. So the church has raised. I don't actually have the story linked here, but the church has raised the price of a mission essentially. So it's been a long time since the church has done this. So I suppose there's nothing uh, exactly wrong <laughs> with that. But uh, for the first time since I believe I want to say 2003, yeah, uh, that was when the uh, the monthly amount missionaries pay uh, was set at four hundred dollars. Mm. It is now going up to five hundred dollars, or the local equivalent, effective July first. What does local equivalent mean? Does, I mean, are they just saying whatever the current exchange rate is in like? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I'm assuming so. Okay. 
but at least it's in 2020. It's not like right now, right? I don't now. know why I pulled bully bars out. That's probably the worst example I could have used. <laughs> yeah. It's also not everywhere. Okay. This is only, there's 18 countries affected Western Europe, basically Western Europe, North America, Australia, and Japan. Curiously, New Zealand left out of the mix, hmm. which is interesting. Um, all very, uh, modern, modernized, uh, yeah. Economy countries. Yeah. And this is the thing people need to realize is we think about the $400 a month, but there are plenty of missions around the world where that is still not the standard and right. it's very much localized because it's much, you know, it's mu- typically because it's much more affordable. I can't think of a, an expensive country that would not be covered under this, you know, like there's some random outlier. I don't know what that was, Singapore or something. I don't know, but, um, but it's still a big deal. It's a 25% increase. The last time they raised it, so when they, they first standardized this in 1991, I think, and back then it was uh, 350 a month. Mm-hmm. So for 12 years, it was 350 and then they bumped it up to 400 which was only a 14% increase. Right. And for funsies, I ran the inflation numbers on everything just to see how it shakes out. And so even though you're paying significantly more, I mean, 100 bucks a month that actually brings the entire cost of a mission up by about 2,500 bucks for a two-year mission, mm-hmm. which is not insignificant. Um, but if you look at it, okay, where did I write about this here? So adjusted for inflation though, $400 from 2003 would be $557 today. Mm. So you're saving $57 in that sense. So you're actually spending 11% less than what the inflated value is. And it's even worse if you actually do inflation from 1991, the 350, that's $658 today. I think you should uh, go around as like sort of a circuit preacher to different wards and, and make yeah. that your pitch. Like you could save money by going on a mission compared to those missionaries of the 90s. That, I mean, technically you do. So technically, if you're going, even though you're paying more money, you are still paying less than the value, assuming the value of the mission is what it was set up before, right? I mean, that could be that, that's that could be a completely you know, random <laughs> factor they threw out there, totally subjective. But assuming that's a standard, then uh, even now you're saving $158 a month compared to what it should be worth, right? So uh, so I was a $350 a month missionary. What were, what, what were you, 350 or 400 Uh, I guess, I think it might've changed when I was there. Oh, really? I, I, I was on my mission in 2002 and 2003, like cleanly on the, I started, I went to the MTC on January 2nd of 2002. So my missions were very, I mean, I ended in 04, but like, you know, a week and a half into 2004 or something like that. So, um, well, since we're being so, so open, I'll, I'll tell you, I went into, I, I went so. into the MTC in December of 98. Uh, so yeah, I was like, I was tail end of 98. So 98 to 2000, I came yeah. home, I came home right before Christmas of, uh, of uh, 2000. So now was that how it was supposed to line up or were you naughty and came home a transfer early so you could be home for Christmas? No. So, uh, so I actually, I, so I did go in, I went into the MTC on December 16th. So I would have had two Christmases in the mission. Um, you know, if we had done, you know, I mean, I, I already had those two under my belt and then the transfers were actually scheduled that last month when I was coming home. Cause yeah. And they, they switched from four week to six week transfers in the middle of my mission. Um, they standardize six week transfers all over the world. And, uh, so then it kind of threw everything off and, oh, and it made okay. it so that, you know, the, the, the way the schedule worked, the next transfer was supposed to be December 26th of 19 or which they're not going to, which they're not going to do. Yeah. And then the next transfer after that wasn't until February because it was six weeks transfers, but, uh, they went ahead and sent, uh, the outgoing missionaries home on December 22nd. They were, they were kind. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, they were okay. Very kind. So it's still pretty normal, which ended up causing a few missionaries in my, in that group who went home to only have one, one, uh, mission Christmas, which, oh. which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, I had to, I mean, we had Christmas and I went home a week and a half later or whatever it was. So it was fun. Other side of heaven, man. We watched that at the Christmas party, and I was bawling at the end of it when he leaves the island. It was just like, okay, this is real. This uh, is over for me too in a minute. We hadn't. Did re- you see? Th- we hadn't reached did, the era of quality LDS cinema yet. When, uh, I don't think we had that either. I think the other side of heaven was the outlier. Yeah. At that point, by the way, did did you see the sequel? Did it play out here where we are at all? I was only vaguely aware that there was going to be a sequel. Oh yeah, I remember seeing an advertisement for it and seeing like and thinking, hey, was that that same actor who played Elder Groberg? And it was. And it then was. I, and I looked to see if Anne Hathaway had reprised her role, and she had not. No, she's that's not her. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know where it's playing. Let's see here. It's so far it has grossed. Its total domestic gross is over one million dollars. Right oh, that, that's that's more than I would have expected. That, that's pretty good. But the original grossed uh, four point seven million dollars. Oh, interesting. And now, and it only played in two theaters. Oh, really? Or it, it, it op- Sorry, it opened in oh, two okay. theaters. Opened okay. in two theaters. Okay. Anyways, I haven't seen the uh, other one either. Anne Hathaway is too busy. It's too cool. <laughs> too cool for school. All right, hit me. Well, as long as we're talking about media in the church, um, let's talk just really briefly um, that uh, I guess we're ramping up towards a 95th birthday celebration for President Nelson. Woohoo! So I have a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, I think it's remarkable that he's 95. I know this is sort of like par for the course. Everybody says this, but honestly, how can you not say he's so vital? He's got so much energy. He does not, you know, seem like a 95-year-old. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, I, I commend him for his his uh, great yeah. ability to age well. Um, but then I'm going to flip this. I, you you should particip- be one of the guest artists here so you can say those exact words. <laughs> I commend you, sir, on your longevity. Um, but uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to turn the, the the tone of, of my uh, commentary a little bit here and just say, why do we have birthday celebrations for the prophet? Like, did this? I don't, I don't know. Did this start with President Hinckley? Did, I think I remember a big concert for President Hinckley and Gladys Knight singing. And I think it's just because we were all just kind of like, he'd been our prophet for so long and he was, he was getting old. And I was like, okay, I can kind of see this. But the fact that we keep on doing it, I don't know, to me, and I don't want to use too strong a language here, you know, like, like you said, I don't like hyperbole. Uh, well, I like it in certain contexts, but not in the context <laughs> of the serious discussion here. But I, I kind of feel like it's inappropriate. And I don't know if that's too strong of a word, but I just, I don't know. I enough people say, Hey, you Mormons, you guys are the ones that worship Joseph Smith. Right. And we don't. And so like, I don't, I don't know. I just kind of think we should stay here of things that might be misconstrued as us elevating a human anywhere above where he ought to be elevated. And, you know, we, we do thank God for a prophet to guide us in these latter days, but uh, we also, I think, need to recognize that, you know, the prophet, his job is to point us to Christ. We're not supposed to be like focusing our adoration or adulation or whatever on President Nelson. He's supposed to be redirecting all of our focus from him towards the Savior. And so when we have a big birthday bash, I kind of go, why? I'm, kind, I'm I, I get it. Um, for me, this feeds into I've I've over the past couple of years. I've soured a little bit on some of the prophet-centric hymns that we have, mm-hmm. and especially because they're redoing the hymn book right now. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I revere Joseph Smith. I'm so thankful for what he did as an imperfect man who fig- was figuring it out as he went and made and committed errors and all those things. Um, but I don't know. Like, for me, hymns are a form of worship, and then we go to church and sing, you know, praise to the man— and all this stuff. Uh, Praise to the man is the one that gets me. Like Joseph Smith's first prayer, I don't mind as much. Yeah, it's a beautiful not, song. Praise really to the man is like straight up, like it's like all hail Joseph Smith. It's basically what the song is. You know, and, and I'm, I've become a lot more mixed on it than I used to be. Are you aware that we've uh, that we don't sing the original lyrics of that song? I'm not aware of that. No, tell me more. Okay, okay here's some fun trivia for you. So uh, when the in the I think it's the last verse where we say. Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, shed by assassins yeah. plead unto heaven while the earth louds his fame. The original lyric penned by William W. Phelps was, Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, stain Illinois while the earth louds his fame. <laughs> I wish we'd keep that one. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that the uh, church, I don't know if they had a PR department at the time, but somebody with some PR savvy said, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't sing about the prophet's blood staining Illinois anymore. <laughs> oh, we got to bring that back. I know, right? Uh, oh, we got to, I need that. I need that. Death not back. only that, I also kind of wish that we had an alternate version of the battle hymn of the Republic in the uh, hymn, hymn book. So we, so that we could sing John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds. Oh cool. yeah. That's the original song. It was, uh, Jared, it was, you're it was, smarter it was an abolitionist hymn about John Brown and his martyrdom in the, the in the cause of freeing the slaves. And then uh, a savvy uh, union, uh, you know, I can't remember her name. The union person. <laughs> she took ah, that, yes, those, she took that popular abolitionist hymn tune and she rewrote the lyrics to be the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know, that, you know, 
we're all marching as an army in a righteous cause. But it was originally the original lyrics. Uh, uh, the, the title of the song was "John Brown's Body Lies a Moldering in the Grave." Okay, we need that one back too. Come on, America's Choir, sing that one. Yeah, I would love that. Anyway, tab cats. So, uh, in addition to my undergrad <laughs> tab cats, thank you for using tab cats. I love that. It's, that's it's got to be tab. That's, the best that's all it can be. Uh, in addition to my undergrad as a poli sci major, I do have a master's in American history. So that's why that's why I know that. That's obviously I wrote my thesis on John Brown's. But no, I'm just kidding. But I do, yeah, I do love history, and I have studied it extensively. So. What What did you write your thesis on? So it was a non thesis program. Uh, so I didn't actually have to do a, a formal thesis. It was more of a let's call it a capstone project. Uh huh. And I uh, I wrote about Craig Claiborne, who was America's first male head of a food section of a national newspaper. He was well, he was the first male head of the food section for the New York Times. And this is in the 1950s when cooking at home was very much a woman's realm. And so it was right. really interesting right. to have a man take over. Uh, who also was a relatively, for the time, relatively openly gay man. Uh, so Craig Claiborne was, yeah, a pretty colorful character, and he was all about cooking, and he kind of made uh, cooking at home okay for men. Like, that's kind of where you start to get the image of, you know, male backyard barbecue cooks and things like that. And and he also kind of is credited with raising the standard of of restaurant reviews and of uh, recipes. You know, we, we were moving out of the molded jello savory jello salad phase of american cooking life and moving into like the the french recipes and sauces that our gis were bringing back after the second world war yeah it was really it was fun it was a really fun writing project because i I like food and i like history and i I like media you know newspapers and so it was pretty cool so if you have any questions about craig claiborne i've got some answers and if you have any questions about Catalan nationalism, I can answer those because that's what I did my master's work on. That's right. Was Mine's, your master's in, it was something with international relations. Is that right? I, I have a master's degree in nationalism studies. Nationalism studies. And you did that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you did that in Scotland. Was that at University I did, of Edinburgh? I did that. Edinburgh? Yep. Yeah, I went to University of Edinburgh. I didn't say it right. I said Edinburgh. I know it wasn't Edinburgh. But, it's uh, good enough. You didn't call it Berg. Yeah. So that's points for that. You're fine. Cool. Doing great. It was a wonderful time. I miss it very, very much. And it's been a while. Um, anyway, uh, so honor code stuff. This just dropped today. The uh, BYU's honor code office, the much maligned honor code office, uh, announced just today that it will, quote, reduce misunderstanding and anxiety through some updates to the program. Um, obviously, if you've been following the honor code for the past number of years, BYU has been in so much hot water because of Title IX issues, uh, both in dealing with like sexual assault issues on campus, but then beyond that, just how it handles honor code violations of consensual nature, you know, of whatever it may be. Either way, they've they've had a lot of bad PR with how they've been handling all of this, and I don't think just bad PR. They've flat out been handling it very poorly. Um, and having gone to BYU, I never gotten, I never had a run in with the honor code office but I was all too aware of how pharisaical they could be about things. So they're working on being better, uh, allegedly, and this is another step to to move forward with that. You might remember in April, there was another protest against the Honor Code office at which, BYU. Which, which is so interesting, ran. right? I went to BYU and I, like, did you ever see a, a protest on campus? I've mentioned this on the show before. I was there for two protests. Really? That's yes. so interesting. I, I was there for the Todd Hendricks protest. Oh. Todd Hendricks was a a uh, he was getting his master's degree there, and then he worked for BYUSA. And uh, I'm a little I'm a little fuzzy on it now, but if memory serves, he wrote an op ed about like institutional things that should be fixed for BYUSA to be like a truly good representative body or something like that. But his the the establishment took it to mean he was trashing his employer. And so it wasn't just that they fired him, it's that it came out that they tried to hush him and just said, look, if you don't go to the press, they said, like, your wife is pregnant, we'll keep you on health care as long as you don't tell people about us firing you oh, for, I don't remember for this, this sort of stuff. Yeah. And so he went to the press and said, whatever. And so there were protests on campus with people chanting BYUSSR. It was really fun. <laughs> I've, got, I've got pictures if you want to see them. It was great. 
Um, so that, I mean, you're talking to people like duct taping their mouths and they write BYU SSR, basically that B, you know, BYU is too afraid of free speech and of letting people. Yeah. That, that duct tape of your mouth, that's real cutting edge stuff. Yeah, really. Right. You know, so truth to power on that one. Uh-huh. And then, uh, Dick Cheney, then vice oh, yeah. president. Okay, was, I, do, I do remember that. I, and that was after was, my time, but I remember reading about that. Yeah. He was going to be the, the commencement speaker and there was a large protest of people thinking that because he profiteered off, you know, killing people well, shouldn't be the one. And that's speaker. interesting though, because that's kind of at the beginning of like that whole, like that was towards the beginning of, of the whole college campuses protesting speakers that they don't like coming, you know, and that, that kind of led into a whole, like a decade of, of, of people saying, I don't want to listen to this person because they represent opposing viewpoints so which and that i don't yeah and then and i was mixed on it too i mean i feel like look he's the standing vice president of the united states and so that alone is like a big deal and an honor if you get to have that at your university i mean lots of other universities have some random saturday night live comedian who comes through and entertains them for a while right, right. so not at byu they would never have that far too ribald they would never do that but uh, but I understood the other side of it. I mean, the Iraq war back then was, that was, it was very unpopular and very hot and Cheney was viewed as the mastermind behind so much of it and Halliburton and all that stuff. So I get I, why. I, I like your use of the uh, past tense there. You know, back then the Iraq war was very unpopular. Unlike well, today, it's like, example of wars that it is today. It's the gold look, standard of wars. Be nice to the United States or we will bring democracy to your country. All right. <laughs> or else. We'll bring it or else. We'll bring it hard and fast. Yeah. Anyway, real quick. So there, the the biggest change here is a good faith statement that says students will be presumed to be not in violation of the honor code out the gate. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. This will not be like the like what British law, where you have to defend yourself from guilt. No, no. You you are considered innocent until proven guilty now at BYU. Congratulations. Well, this is Western huge. liberalism. Well, I mean, yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I like your sarcastic clap. I, I felt the sarcasm with each little beat of your palms. But um, but I mean, it is big. Like that's one of been one of the main complaints is that you know you know I mean you know and people and I don't know how much of this is hyperbole, but you know you'd hear these stories of somebody saying like, well, my roommate said that I did this and the honor code office immediately took action and like suspended me or put me on yeah, or whatever happens. without ever like actually investigating to say, Oh, well, did you do that? You know, like, and so, and, and, you know, and there were all sorts of ridiculous things. Like I went back to help a girl move her dresser in her bedroom. And then I got reported to the honor code office and I was put on academic probation or whatever, you know? And so like, so, I mean, the fact that they are recognizing, hey, we should allow other people to share their side of the story before we make a decision, like, it seems ridiculous, but it's a big step forward. It's a good idea. And I'm so glad when I was at BYU, I did not have lunatic roommates. No. Um, well, see, I remember then- one time, I had a friend of mine who wasn't even in our ward. She was a friend from California, and she didn't really know her home teacher. She asked if she could, I could give her a blessing. And she was like nearby. So like I, just, I said, just, you know, come to my place. So yeah, like we went to my bedroom and I gave her a blessing because that my roommates didn't know her, you know, it wasn't going to be like a thing we do publicly in the living room or what have you. So that's fine. Like spirit of the law, people think about it. I would have reported you, Jeff. I would have named names. Go ahead. See if I care. I would have been fine. I would have just protested. Todd Hendricks, man. Um, you know, it is written into the honor code. I, well, at least it was when I was there. You know, there, it, that it basically said like there was sort of this little caveat that's you know, for like when when propriety dictates that you know exceptions can be made. So like in the example was always like if you need to go to the bathroom, like it's okay to go past the quote unquote chastity line so you can go use the bathroom in the opposite gender's apartment. Um, so. You know, and yeah, and I think you know you could probably make an argument that you know wanting privacy for giving a blessing, is, you know, administering a sacred it order makes sense. But that's, it's a, that's amazing. A, yeah, it's propriety, right? Yeah, but it's amazing how myopic we can be. You know, it's just stuff like that can be ridiculous. So I'm glad, I'm glad they're making positive strides, hoping for good things. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a couple uh, mentions at you before Jared takes some other stuff. Uh, there are we are slowly trickling out saints. Yeah, you remember. Last summer's hot beach read, Saints Volume One, <laughs> um, which is a history of the Saints. It was a nice, a nice narrative the way it was written. It tried to get into some of the sort of thornier aspects of uh, of our history. I admit it did kind of gloss over Joseph Smith and polygamy a little bit more than it needed to, probably. 
But either way, it was it was worthwhile, and I think it was a great effort to get everyday Latter-day Saints more engaged on church history. Because I think as a people, we really don't know much of our stuff beyond a lot of the classic basics, right? Yeah. So, so it was enjoyable, and it was great. So Saints Volume 2 is not out in its entirety. Instead, they are releasing chapters piecemeal on like a monthly basis. So right now, you can read Chapter 1 online. Yeah, and then sometime and next month in August, you'll get Chapter 2, and they're going to keep doing that. And then at some point, it's not like it's going to be chapter by chapter until we have the whole book. At some point, no, they're going to get to the point where they're just going to dump the print volume on us. Yeah, I mean, it's a 30-odd chapter book, presumably, right. so I don't think that would really work. Um, but for now, they're just teasing it out. So if you want to read that and stay up on it, I admittedly have not gotten into the new one yet, and I uh, don't know exactly where it starts, I, what it's covering. Yeah, I I did. I, I went I, when I saw the announcement. I went and downloaded that first chapter on my uh, Gospel Library app, and it's uh, it's open in a tab on that app. But I have not as yet read it. So, uh, but I you know I thought Volume One was great, and just to kind of provide a counterpoint, I, I agree. It probably could have gone a little more into some of the controversial things like plural marriage and Joseph Smith's wives. But I, I thought as I was reading through there that, you know, they did much, they addressed it much more thoroughly than I've ever seen. Yeah. In church yeah. Publications. I, I, I applauded a lot, not just uh, plural marriage. There were a lot of things about, you know, seer stones, a lot of things that like we didn't talk about when I was a youth because we didn't talk about it. I didn't know about it. No, no. Uh, There's a whole lot of stuff in there. there I, I was learning things left and right. Uh, and once again, remember, I have a history degree, so you'd think I'd know it all, but I don't. I, I was, uh, yeah, no, I was like, I was, I really enjoyed reading it because there were a whole lot of things that I thought, oh, I'd never known that knew this before, or I, I'd never had this perspective before. They brought a lot of perspective of women uh, mm-hmm. in, into mm-hmm. the church history stuff too, which I thought was great. So I'm really looking forward to uh, Saints Volume Two because Volume One is uh, the the portion of church history we generally talk the most about of the yes. the, the, yeah. the main you know, sort of cradle of restoration stuff up through the martyrdom and the completion of the Nauvoo temple. And that, you know, we obviously talk a lot about the Trek West as well, but once we hit Salt Lake and start laying the foundation for the temple, like there's this kind of long blank period until official declaration one, where we don't really talk about that history. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what this volume is going to cover. Yeah. And officially the years it's going to cover is 1846 to 1893. So I imagine it's going to culminate with the uh, temple dedication. Oh, Salt Lake. Salt yeah. Lake. Yeah. And that'll be great. I, like I said, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in there that I don't really know about, except for like, you know, reading some of my family history stuff, which is obviously very focused on, you know, not very many people. Yeah. So. I'm cu- I'm curious to see how it'll handle uh, Mountain Meadows. That'll be interesting yes. and worthwhile, yes. I hope. Uh, I'm curious to see what it does with John Taylor's presidency. Because if I think if you had to, okay, everyone knows Joseph, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, of course, made his mark. I think Wilford Woodruff is most known because he was president when the Salt Lake Temple was dedicated and a lot of his life, you know, revolved around around that and other episodes in church history. And John Taylor, of course, is a big figure. But I think if you had to ask a lot of Latter-day Saints, like what notable things happened when, while John Taylor was president of the church, I don't think that all of us would have a lot to add. Right. And also, I think, I think, wasn't he like in exile for a while though while he was church president? Didn't he have to yes. feed a... No, Back that was, Canada for a while or something like that. Well, that's what I was going to say. He actually died while he was in hiding from the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I want to, I mean, and I, I get it. You know, we were trying to exercise what we felt was our freedom of religion to practice plural marriage, et cetera, whatever. So I understand that, you know, why, but like, it's just an interesting fact that like he basically died while the U.S. government considered him a fugitive. And I would love to see, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that gets addressed in an official church history. That's got to be in, it's got to be in there. Oh, Hopefully I'm sure it will be, but I just yeah. want to see how they talk about it. And I don't know, I, I've been really pleasantly surprised with the candidness of, of Saints Volume 1. Obviously, it's still a devotional text. By, by Oh yeah, by, totally, totally, totally. But, but there's also some very candid discussion of some of the more controversial aspects of our history. And so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how they talk about that and they talk about the... Johnson's army and the Mormon wars. I, I used air quotes again. Uh, if you guys couldn't see it, sorry. I need to stop doing that. And besides, you know what? If Rough Stone Rolling is another example of it, but it's a lot denser. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I once sat next to Richard Bushman at church and he didn't even fellowship me. So what? Why? What? Why should, yeah. Were, you, were uh, you going to church up in Manhattan? I was up in Manhattan. He was right next to me and I was just like, hey, didn't said nothing. And I said, you cantankerous old man. How <laughs> dare you write your books? Shameful. 
you know, he's said a lot. So I think he, yeah, I know that, that ward, his ward in Manhattan is kind of like this all-star ward as far as, uh, the, um, Adam and Eve from the now retired temple movie with Michael Ballum mm-hmm. are also in that ward. Yeah. No, I've attended that ward once. Uh, and I go. think it was actually, it was in October. So it was their primary program. It was delightful. Now we should move to Manhattan. All right. Um, waning moment. Let's see here. Jared, do you want to take the verge to task? Do you want to get into that one? Sure. I mean, I don't know how much we want to talk about this. And again, if you follow our Facebook feed or if you are just kind of a savvy <laughs> a savvy consumer of the verge. Um, I am. I actually read the verge like every day. Oh, really? Oh, good for you. I, 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 I consume it as, a, as, a, as, as topics pop up that are interesting. The, and the verge... By the way, The Verge primarily is it's a technology website. It's a tech site. So it's where you want to read about phones and MacBooks and all kinds of junk like that. Sure. But they have a story about us. Right. Well, and I guess like the, this kind of crossed into their domain, um, no pun intended, because Ayo. they are, uh, it's a story that's, uh, they're talking about a website called Quit Mormon. Is it quitmormon.com? I can't remember. Yeah. Or we, we, or this is not one of our sponsors. Uh, <laughs> Quit Mormon so much. Uh, website where uh, a lawyer uh, who is a former LDS member himself, uh, makes it as quick and easy as he can for members who don't want to be members anymore to leave the church. Generally, uh, for those of you who haven't looked into this too much, you need to go and talk with your bishop. You could even, you know, send a letter to your bishop. It doesn't even require an interview, but you, you know, it generally requires you to talk to your bishop and say, I want my records removed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and I guess the fear that some people have, or not maybe not even fear is probably too strong a word, just the the inconvenience that some people see is that their bishop may try to convince them not to, or even just ask questions like, well, why do you want to do this? And they don't want to deal with all that, hey, I want to counsel with you, junk. And so instead, sorry, I'm being flippant. I understand that this is a sensitive topic for people and that, you know, I get that people have their reasons when they want to leave the church. So I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a little that at all. But uh, so the idea is that you can bypass that whole process. And this lawyer has come up with a way to basically just send a, uh, an official legal request directly to church headquarters or, as has been happening for the last several months, directly to the church's law firm, uh, th- asking that your records be removed. And it's been quite effective. I actually know uh, at least one person off the top of my head who's, who's, who's done this. Um, but so it's an interesting article in that, you know, it addressed... Um, something that's happening. It's a very relevant topic in the church today, um, especially since there were a few, a couple of events over the last few years that caused a lot of people uh, to want to leave the church uh, in yeah. larger numbers, or at least yeah. people who had kind of been on the edge suddenly decided to do it. Well, yeah, like the um, the policy, right? The policy, year. and even the rescinding Same. of the policy pushed some people, yeah, into you know. So it, it takes all kinds, I guess, um, but. I I just, uh, I don't, I didn't love the article. I felt like its tone was not very objective. I guess that's, that's probably an overstatement (laughs) that its tone was not very objective. Um, You know, and it would say basically like I was reading it and what I was getting from it was like, well, you know, people are leaving the church because the truth of their, the unvarnished truth of their history is now available to them on the internet. So once they figure out the truth, uh, naturally they want to leave. And I was like, well, Thanks for <laughs> the objective stating of all sides of the story. And, and my favorite, well, one of my favorite parts was when they called Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History an unvarnished approach to Mormon history. Um, yeah. That book carries so much varnish that it, you know, it glistens. Uh, so. <laughs> and again, I mean, and I don't have, I don't disrespect Fawn Brody herself as a person, but I actually, I used uh, in my, I had to write a uh, historiographic uh paper at one point and I chose the topic of Mormon polygamy as my topic for my historiography. And I used Fawn Brody as one of my sources. And one of the things that she talks about in her own introduction, she, cause she's doing this psychoanalytical approach to history, which was kind of new and novel and which eventually fell out of fashion because it was just deemed not a valid approach to writing about historical figures anyway. But she says Hey, I'm doing this psychoanalytical approach and I'm blah, blah, blah. And then she says, you know, I don't actually have any background in psychology, so I'm not really qualified to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm paraphrasing, but I love that she even like stated that she really wasn't qualified to write the book, but heck, let's give it a go. 
So I don't know. That's my that's my rant about Von Brody and Nomendo's my history. And then that's my rant about the Verge. I just think it was uh, it, it could have used a little more nuance and a little more. Hey, let's. Uh, I mean, they, not that they didn't quote church uh, uh, spokespeople and church resources. They did do a little bit of that. But I, yeah, the, the whole tone of the thing was sort of like it's a foregone conclusion that once you learn your true history, you're going to want to leave this church. And I, yeah, it, yeah I agree. I agree with you. I thought the same thing when I read through it. All right. Quick mention here. This was just interesting. There was a guy who was a temple worker at the Payson Temple down there in southern Utah County in the state of Utah mm-hmm. who put his hair up in dreads. And it was a good look he, for him, I got to say. Yeah, it works pretty well. So uh, he did, he even so he did his hair like this, and he actually sent a picture to his shift worker at the temple or his shift manager and, says, and told him, like, here's some heads up, you know, so you won't be shocked when I show up. But then he got a call from his temple president saying that dreadlocks violated church guidelines and he couldn't come in. And he was like, okay. Which is so funny, he, because, right? Because there was like this gap between they saw him have it and they were fine. And then suddenly it wasn't fine. Yeah. Um, so he, the, the man in question says that normally he'd let it go, but he decided to put a photo on social media that said, hey, my black brothers and sisters, this hairstyle will get you released as an ordinance worker. <laughs> What a rabble rouser. (laughs) So by Saturday morning, the next day, the temple president called after being in contact with the church's temple department. And the decision was now that he's okay. He can do this. The church itself has declined to comment, uh, which is not surprising. Um, It's a, that that's the, basically the whole story. And thankfully he doesn't have any hard feelings about this. He doesn't think there was racism or thought it was a good faith experience. And that's fine. But um, it cracks me up that they flipped around so quickly and went all the way up to the temple department to just get this cleared up as opposed to just not – who cares? I know temple workers have to have a conservative look. But if they're allowing him, by the way, then they better as heck need to allow people to have beards. Well-groomed beards, but beards. Why are you so? Why do you feel so strong about beards, Jeff? Do, do, you, do you sport a well-groomed beard yourself? Yes, yeah, so this – this is fair. This is where a, this is where a good journalist offers full disclosure in that I have a beard, so I have a stick in the a stick in the game, um, skin in the game, as it were. Yeah, I just you know if you were playing pickup sticks, that's a valid uh, metaphor. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that stick game that Joseph Smith liked to play, right? Yeah, thing with the, I've got a stick in this game. Yeah, that's the one. So anyway, I just I think this is good. It's inclusive. But if we're doing this, let's set a good precedent and be a little more open-minded about some people who might also look perfectly acceptable by, I was going to say by 2019 standards, but then I forgot that we don't adhere to the standards of the world. The Lord's standards are rooted in early 1960s reactionary measures against uh, counterculture movements. Well, not anymore because women can wear pants in the church office building now. That's true, but they can't at the temple. (laughs) The sister missionaries can. I'm sure you guys have already talked about that. Baby steps. Baby steps, right. Okay. Um, Speaking of, uh, no, there's no good segue to this. Um, So I I just, one of the things that, you know. Star Trek. You like Star Trek. Yeah, we were talking about Star Trek. Yeah. And, uh, there, it's it's summertime, so naturally it is the season of Trek reenactments. Because what better time oh. to try and uh, recreate nineteenth-century traveling conditions than in the heat of the summer? I hate Trek so much, and I've <laughs> never done it because it's I. Uh, it's just okay. Oh, go ahead. I didn't expect that. Wow, that was quite that was quite an explosion of uh, of emotion right there from 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 Jeff. I I don't I don't know if I to say I hate Trek. I do question. The idea of the trek, I, um, I just I think it's super interesting. I think it's I think it's an interesting form of pageantry, shall we call it, um, that we like to pretend like we are our pioneer forebears and kind of give tribute to them and maybe try to experience what they experienced. But man, when you're in Utah and it's like in the upper nineties, it's not a good time to push a handcart and not have air conditioning or access to running water. Well, yeah, but it's a dry heat. So, you know, well, tell that to the 300 youth who were on top of where were they? Where were they? Enzyme Peak. And they uh, suddenly 300 uh, youth came down with a terrible case of heat exhaustion and dehydration. I remember reading this. This is just, you know, in the last week. It was the last week. Yeah, it was last week. And at that time, my nephew, who lives in American Fork, uh, was on a trek. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. I hope it's not. I hope it's not him, and he wasn't. So, Josh, glad you're okay. 
But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think if we're going to continue doing these treks, and, and maybe we shouldn't, but if we are, we got to use some wisdom and maybe, you know, not only have a big water wagon, but maybe also ensure that proper electrolytes are being consumed and proper shade is being uh, offered. And I don't know, maybe we could, uh, if we're going to like do this, let's like do it all the way and actually hire some ox and mule teams so that these kids don't have to push their handcarts all by themselves. All right. Fair enough. Or just don't do it at all. Or, or just don't do it. And, um, and realize that, that just as, just as we, uh, you know, we try to experience what the pioneers experienced, the pioneers did not deal with like social media pressures and pornography and anti-vaxxers oh, and multi-level marketing um, and anti-vaxxers and crap like that. So I think we have our own set of issues to worry about. I'm just, I'm deeply anti-trek. I'm glad they don't, they didn't do it growing up in California. It was not a thing. Like why? So yeah. I, I, I missed, those of I you in the mountain West, whatever. Older siblings went on a trek uh, when I, I was like 12 or 13. So I was just barely like, you know, it was 14 and up. I've just barely missed it. And they didn't do another trek while I was a youth. And I remember being really disappointed, but I'm okay with it now. Here's the thing, though. So, like you said, you know, maybe we don't need to go and experience it. And I, I, maybe with the release of Saints Volume 2, where we'll actually have a really good, authoritative, detailed account of the Trek, that yes. will preempt the need to actually recreate Treks. We can just have the youth read those chapters, and we can talk about them. And then we can, you know, if they really want to, have them kill a chicken in someone's backyard. Um <laughs> Because that's something that happens on Trek, man. You have to that's kill a true. chicken. Anyway, like for real, they kill chickens. I, oh, I—that's what I remember. My brother and sister coming home and being like, what "Yeah, the we- devil is wrong with their." Oh my gosh! All right, the show's <laughs> over. We're already running long. So, anyway, everyone, of course, you can visit us at thisweekinmormons.com where you can read all of neat stuff that we publish there. And we've mentioned before, please follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram where we occasionally uh, do things. If you want a feminine approach, you can also follow the Twim Sisters on Instagram. That's Ariane and uh, Tiffany, who will be here next week, by the way. Um, And of course, uh, please go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash This Week in Mormons and pledge a buck a month. That's all we're asking so that we can pay our hosting fees and server fees and all that nonsense uh, to try to keep this thing going in an unobtrusive way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I would like to thank Jared. Thanks so much for sitting down, man. It's been fun having you on this week. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to doing more of this. Well, I mean, we'll see. And- <laughs> <laughs> I hinted at other things that you don't know about me. That was supposed to like really like bait you. And like- Oh, that's true. Okay, so tune in again when Jared returns to to enlighten us more about special details about himself, which I'm sure will be riveting. Gillen's mystique, as they call it. That's what I should name this episode. I've already, <laughs> I've already got some other potential ones, but I'll put that one down here too. Gillen's <laughs> mystique, beautiful. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, everybody. We cannot do twin without you, and uh, from the bottom of my heart, I'm glad you're all here and that you make this worthwhile for all of us. So for Jared, I'm Jeff. Have a terrific week, and we'll talk to you soon. Be well, be holy, and be happy. <laughs> This week in Mormons This week in Mormons This